the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Good morning, Glory America. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. I will continue to update you on events from Kabul Airport as the Marines have got the perimeter secured. If anything happens, I'll break away from my interview with Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institute of Health. But I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Collins. Dr. Collins, thank you for spending time with me. It's good to have you back. Uh, glad to be with you, Hugh. we got lots to talk about, I guess. I do. I've got two major categories, boosters and children. Let's begin with boosters. The New York Times this very morning advises U.S. to advise boosters for most Americans eight months after vaccination. True or false, doctor? Well, we have been meeting and discussing about this almost daily, and we will have something to announce very shortly about boosters because we do believe the time has come uh, to have a plan for Americans. Uh, doctor, in Israel, one million booster shots have been administered to Israelis over the age of 50. They've done a one come one come all program. Will America open up the doors while there's capacity and people are with their families in the summer? Will we not try and manage this down to the level of age group, et cetera? Just open the doors and get people boosted? Well, as you may have seen from the information overnight, the notion is uh, to allow or to encourage boosters uh, eight months after initial vaccinations. Uh, when you look at the Israeli data, I'm looking at it right now, because uh, they're a little bit ahead of us in terms of when Delta hit them really hard. It's a combination of Delta being a particularly nasty variant that's very contagious, and the fact that, unsurprisingly, vaccine protection does gradually wane over time. And so in the Israeli data, the people who got immunized in January are the ones that are now having more breakthrough cases. Uh, mostly, of course, these are symptomatic but not serious, but you're starting to see a little bit of a trend towards some of those requiring hospitalization. That's the same thing we're starting to see in the U.S. data, although right now it still looks as if our vaccine uh, protection is working really well. But we don't want to wait until it's like, oh, too late. So that's why we're looking at the data. CDC has at least four or five different cohorts they're watching. And basically, it does look as if boosters are going to be a good idea. But if you start boosting with the people who got their vaccines earliest, you're going to end up vaccinating, particularly the nursing homes, the healthcare providers, the elderly, because they're the ones who got doses first. So it kind of all fits together. Uh, doctor, there's plenty of capacity, though, so I want to drill down on this. Israel has adopted a public policy. It's not a medical process. It's a public policy process of the market will organize itself if we simply say 50 and above. The nursing home registered uh, uh, occupants will demand it. The good nursing home providers will provide it. 
and people will self-regulate. The FDA, working with the CDC, seems trapped in a rules-based order that they've got to let go of, in my opinion, as a public policy analyst. And I served 17 years on a public health board in California. I'm not ignorant. I'm just a lawyer, not a doctor. But it seems to me we'd be better served by just saying, come one, come all. If it's been five months since your shot, come on in. Well, I hear you. And I think that's an entirely defensible position. But let me add a little science to it. When we look at vaccines and how it works best, if you're getting a booster to get full effect, we don't have enough data right now to be sure that this applies to COVID-19, but it probably does. You probably do want to wait at least six months after your initial immunization to give that immune system chance to mature the diversity of antibodies that it can produce and then you hit it with the booster. So if somebody just got their primary immunization, you know, a couple of months ago, I don't think this is the right moment for that booster. That will not give them the same effect. So this I agree, doctor. I, do, is, is, I, is I agree, but I'm saying it, uh, we've got to have a clear message. What has happened over the last year is confused messaging. So a very clear message. And I wouldn't mind saying six months or seven months. People have their cards. They know. But one message for all Americans will be easier to communicate. And if there's one area that I will know better than the CDC, I've been doing this 30 years, it's how to sell something. And if you want to sell a booster shot, you give one message a million times, which is if it was six months ago, go in. And then the second question is, can you mix boosters or do you have to stick with the same booster? Ideally, you want to stick with the same one because that's where we have the data. Uh, You may have seen last week, though, when FDA authorized for people who are immune compromised to get a third dose. They said that there as well. Better to get the same uh, dose uh, of Moderna or Pfizer that you got to begin with. But if for some reason you don't have access to it, well, then get the other one. Again, I feel more comfortable as a scientist uh, fixing our plans on real data. And that means sticking to the same uh, kind of vaccine that you got to begin with. Uh, But obviously there will be situations, rare one, I guess, uh, where people will feel the need to switch over. And of course, we got to figure out about J&J as well. Uh, Recognize, however, the J&J doses didn't start giving, uh, being given to people until April. So those folks are not quite as far down the curve of potential waning of efficacy as the people who got immunized back in January and February with the mRNA vaccine. But uh, I get that. Doctor, are you hearing me, though, on clarity of messaging? The reason we're behind is that complicated messages are unfortunately very difficult to receive. The Luntz rule is you've got to if you want to sell a book, you've got to say it seven times in the same segment, the title. And Frank knows what he's talking words at work. It's one of my mantras when I interview an author. You say the book title seven times. So if the message is get a booster, it's got to be clarified. Any booster will do. It's preferable to get the same one after six months. I hope you follow that advice. And I'm happy to go to any meeting you want me to, doctor. I would love to know if you actually have any private sector communications consultants in the advisory group that is making these decisions. Do you? Uh, You know, because all of this is pretty sensitive, it's a little harder to do that. I think we have really good professional experts, actually, though, in our communications team within the government. They're not uh, hacks either, Hugh. I don't think they're hacks, doctor. I I have to disagree with you, though. It is it is actually one of the worst communications rollout. I don't blame you. I think it's a it's a crisis. 
It's been poorly managed. Just bring in, ask Ron Klain to come to the meetings. He's one of the smartest guys on pandemics and epidemiology who knows how to communicate. Or get Fred Ryan from the Washington Post to send over a couple of people and have them sign NDAs because the messaging's awful. And you're a scientist. You know we got to get data loops, right? And the data loop I'm giving you is let's message this one right because I'm a big proponent of vaccine. Second question. This one's very specific. Let me let me just say, I think you're making a great point. (laughs) And I have a lot of respect for your opinion and your experience here. We do need to be clear as this gets rolled out, which is coming pretty soon, that we have a really clear and distinct message. And we say it over and over again. And, yeah, I I know Frank Luntz and he's right on this. And, yeah, Ron Klain is, after all, the chief of staff for Joe Biden. So he's very much going to be engaged in whatever happens That, that I can reassure you about that one. Thank you. It's just bad. I know the White House hit the CDC hard after the child data and we'll come back with that. And I think it's because they're simply not aware of that terrible mask uh, decision and how it was communicated. But there's one discrete issue that I have promised a number of people I will ask. People put up their hands and did trials for these vaccines a year ago. They are well past eight months. Many of them are over 65. Some are over 70. Should they get boosters? Should they get authorizations? Will the CDC send them an email entitling to go get a booster? What a great question, Hugh. (laughs) I've been also very focused on this myself, as is Tony Fauci. In my opinion, and we have to figure out how to do this in terms of the logistics, I think they ought to be the top of the list. They volunteered uh, to take part in these trials without knowing whether the vaccines were going to work or whether they're going to be safe. And yeah, they're further out from their initial vaccination than almost anybody else. So I think they ought to be first in line. I'm right there with you. So my humble suggestion would be for you and Dr. Fauci together, because everyone has to cover that. When you two appear together, everyone has to cover that to come out and say, we're here to tell you one thing, which is if you were part of the trial, go get a booster. And if you can't get the booster you originally got, get another booster. We'll be back with more information. And you pharmacists, give them a booster and then send them an email. Now, let's turn to the kids because we're going to spark it up here, doctor, I'm afraid. Um, I, I think it's a terrible idea to mask children K through three. A terrible idea. Now, I speak as a grandfather who has seen children with learning issues, either in speech or hearing or vision, badly suffer from masks. And those are not even the first order casualties of this. Why did the CDC change their mind about masking K through three? Well, I listened to your interview uh, just a week ago with Tony Fauci on this very topic, and I agree with Tony that this is a difficult issue, and this is not one where you can say, well, it's a slam dunk one way or the other. One thing I would say, though, while we are clearly seeing more children getting infected with COVID-19, you argued it's still pretty rare. It is still pretty rare, but it is not zero, and we have now more than 400 kids that have died of this. So we have to think about that. But also think about what's going on in that classroom for two other reasons. Even if kids are not going to get that sick, uh, they can certainly get infected. They don't transmit quite as vigorously as older people, but they can transmit it. Lots of evidence of that. So if we're trying to tamp down the spread, here is one more place to do so. The other thing, Hugh, and now think about this. I want to hear your reaction to this. I agree with you. We got to get kids back in the classroom. This virtual learning for the last year has been really bad for their development. 
But if they're unmasked in the classroom, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be an outbreak. That's already happening in states that don't require masks. And then what happens? The kids go back home again. That's a bad outcome. So even if you're not worried about their personal health, if you're worried about the fact that we want them to stay in school, the masks may be an important way to achieve that. Now, the key question there, uh, Dr. Collins, is that you use the word may. Uh, I went back after Dr. Fauci's very kind appearance on the show and did a deep dive into speech pathology. If a child is not caught up by age eight, it becomes exponentially more difficult to teach them speech. They cannot learn speech without access to facial expression. And so you're talking about lifelong deficits because of a fear uh, not yet well placed. I, I read the transcript. Dr. Fauci very much admitted there is no data. There is a fear that the Delta variant might be worse for children. Based on that fear, we are accepting known substantial costs and deficits, which will be lifelong in the classroom. So I, I don't want to bring up President Biden's speech last night, but it was a false choice that he proposed to the American people. The choice is here on K to three kids back in the classroom. If their parents have the reason to take the mask off, should the parents be allowed to make that choice for their children? Again, we're on a different side of this, Hugh, for the reason I tried to outline that it's not just the cause of concern about the children's health, although that's in there. It's also if you really believe that they're better off in the classroom, even with a mask, than back at home staring at a screen. Talk about a problem with speech development in that setting. As but well that, as that's the false choice, doctor. The choice is in the classroom because everybody wants them back. They're all going back. I don't know of any districts that are shut down. There might be a few. So the real choice is what do, we all agree. You and I agree. And I think most of the people listening, kids need to go to school. We had a disastrous year. So they're going back to school. I think you and I agree that teachers must get an, uh, uh, a mandatory uh, vaccination or tested every week. We agree. The disagreement, let's focus on the disagreement, is with the kids in the classroom where there are choices to be made about whether or not they wear masks in the classroom K through three. Is there any data showing that those kids are at greater risk of hospitalization or illness of serious sort from taking their mask off there if there are other ventilation pods and other non-pharmaceutical interventions at play? I wish we had that data. But, Hugh, I don't think you're hearing me. It's not just about that. No, I, I'm hearing you. You're worried about what goes on. But you just said there's no data. So you guys are guessing. Well, we're not guessing when we look at the fact that classrooms that have opened up already without requiring masks are now having many of those classrooms closed down in schools and all those kids went home again because they had an outbreak. And that's not what we want either. So on that basis, just look at what's happened in those states and ask yourself the question, if the goal is to keep people in class, wouldn't it be better to minimize the chance of an outbreak? And wouldn't that basically map better onto keeping masks on? I, know I don't, don't know, like because I, I saw those headlines, doctor, but you tell me they closed because of the number of positive tests. But was there real harm? Because if it's the flu or a common cold in children, that was a bad decision and a panicky one that I understand completely. I'm not blaming school districts for panicking. But I think we've created a concern about panic with outbreaks among children when the children do not demonstrate any significant. I know the 400 cases. You've mentioned that. I heard you. But I don't think you have any data showing that there's a significant greater risk 
of being sent home than lifelong learning deficits. I, I mean, I'd accept it if there was. I'm a science guy. It's just not there. And I don't think we have the data on either side of it, Hugh. I think right now we're all trying to do the best we can. You and I have a slightly different view of this. I see masks wearing on my grandchildren as something that they tolerate pretty well. I'm not sure I see this quite as the major threat that you do to development of speech. I do worry about it a lot. And you just got to balance two difficult choices. Neither of these is a happy outcome. This is the reality of what we're stuck with, especially with Delta. And so, doctor, here's the hard question. We're Americans. We believe in freedom. You and I are sitting in the Beltway and we're both Beltway guys. And you are one of the most respected scientists in America. And I'm not a bad journalist. We should not be substituting our judgment for that of a parent who lives with their child, whether they're autistic on the spectrum, speech problem, socialization problem, unless we're prepared to own the consequences of that. I'm not. I believe in freedom. Why shouldn't that parent have the choice? Your answer might be because we don't know what their child will do to other people, but it's an absence of data and, uh, you know, and anecdotal evidence is evidence of anecdotes. You're setting sail to fear. I'm setting sail to freedom. Why am I wrong? I'm trying to go with what the majority of public health experts who've looked at this situation, recognizing the imperfection of the data and tried to come up with the best solution. And I don't really want to second guess them. And I do think there are times where freedom has to be considered in the space of what that means for others around you. Somebody compared this, you know, back in the uh, World War II, when there was a blitz in London, people had to turn their lights off so that they wouldn't be uh, seen as a target. If you decided, well, I'm going to keep my lights on because I just don't feel like turning it off, you're putting all those people around you at risk. Now, that's a bit of a dramatic example, but I think we would all agree that's a place where your freedom to keep your light on was probably going to need to be compromised. Is this like that? Is this a public health situation where every one of us is making a decision that affects the rest of us? Yeah, I think it is. All those people who are still unvaccinated, which you and I both agree is a terrible mistake, are putting others at risk. That's why we have all this terrible outbreak in the Southeast. So yeah, there are situations in public health where the complete freedom of parents and the rest of us has to be put in context. And this is one of those. Uh, now, you see, my disagreement with your analogy is that the siloing effect of scientists inside the Beltway is fairly significant in terms of uh, cutting off information flow from people who are actually getting bombed. But, mm. but that can be remedied over time. Let me move to the question about people congregating in large groups in the Provincetown study. I asked Dr. Fauci this, whether or not that was an outlier he said it had been matched by a San Francisco General Hospital study. Are you confident that you have the data that shows that the Delta variant is more dangerous to children than the Alpha or any other variant? The data I've seen from Singapore, from Scotland, from Canada does suggest, and those three studies all agree, and the Canadian one's pretty good, that Delta is, in fact, not just more contagious but more likely to be really serious. Now that is adults. There aren't enough cases in children to be able to say that statistically, but it's a little hard for me to understand if it's more likely to be severe in adult, why it wouldn't be in a child. So I think the default has to be to assume that. And talk to the hospitalists in pediatric uh, hospitals 
about what they're seeing. Uh, and I've heard from them through the AAP. They're convinced that this Delta variant is making kids not only more numerous, but sicker than what they have seen before. And I, I'm very close with the Children's Hospital of Orange County staff. I would trust them with any kind of decision. I know how dedicated the pediatric professionals are and the people who run those hospitals. But I think I heard you say, no, we don't have data. We have anecdotes. And I think one of the CDC's issues going forward is to distinguish anecdotes from scientific conclusions. So on the basis of anecdotal evidence, the CDC is recommending that or is suggesting the Delta is more dangerous. On the basis of anecdotal evidence, I've heard ivermectin is a wonder drug. But you and I talked about ivermectin once and you said there were studies underway. So when does the CDC use anecdotal data and when do they dismiss it? Well, believe me, the CDC really hates to have to make recommendations based on anecdotes. They're rigorous public health scientists. But sometimes, Hugh, it's what you've got at the time. You look around to see what's been done in the rest of the world and what we can do here, and you make the best of it while you're trying to design studies that are going to be more rigorous, which is what we're doing right now. This is a tough time. Uh, Give the guys a little bit of a break there. They're trying to manage... uh, the worst pandemic in 103 years that is moving so rapidly. And Delta has blown everything up that we thought we knew about COVID-19. And we sort of have to start all over again with new data. And we've only really had this one for about the last oh, month and a half. So, Oh, I do. I credit you, Go. I credit everyone with good faith and their best effort. I do, I do worry about epistemic closure where – the gang at the CDC NIH is closed off to people like me who are responsible critics of some decisions and not listening. Here is my last appeal to you, doctor. Let's talk about this. The CDC's public facing data pages are horrific. Uh, an average American wants to know number of hospitalizations, number of deaths due to COVID that are certain, not in which COVID is present, but which COVID caused. It takes forever to find that data if you can even find it. And when you find it, it's not broken out by age and race. These are the key determinants of public knowledge and non-panic. Can you get them to fix it? You know, I think you're making a good point. I go to the CDC website many times a day, and I also sometimes have trouble finding what I'm looking for. I will convey your concern (laughs) to Dr. Walensky, because while there's a huge amount of data there, maybe it's not in the most user-friendly fashion. I hear you, and we ought to try to make this more accessible to the average American. Because I think the number one question is, how many people are being hospitalized How many people are dying? Are they vaccinated? I had an argument with a friend last night who is among the vaccine reluctant, who has now had COVID. And I want to get to the last scientific question, wanting to argue with me with anecdotes. And I could not send him to a site to prove to him. I think it's nine out of 10 people who are in critical care or who have died were not vaccinated. I believe it's 90 percent, but I can't find that anywhere. Am I right about my number? Uh, You're right about the number. It depends a little bit on which part of the country you're talking about. If you're in a low vaccination rate area like Florida, Louisiana, it's like 99 percent. But in places with higher vaccination rates, the number drops a bit. So am I right? Am I right that the most at risk racial group is African-American? Um, that would be one of them, but certainly also people over 65. If you're talking about racial groups, African-Americans have been hit ridiculously hard by this. And that should be a wake up call to all of us about how our healthcare system is not equitable. And so these 
I'm a fear. My, the next pandemic is a pandemic of panic. Uh, and I am very concerned about what's coming. But data kills that off. And so the yeah. better presentation of data. Let me close with the worst case scenario. I talked about it with Dr. Fauci. Uh, the WHO appears to be urging no boosters so that more first and second round shots can be sent around the world to people who have no protection whatsoever. That's a, that's a public policy decision with which Americans and Israelis disagree. We're going to vaccinate our own people and be the beacon of research and hope for the world in the pandemic. Nevertheless, the question arises, what about uh, an Omega variant? Is there any evidence of another variant that is, in fact, by data proven to be significantly deadlier than anything we've seen yet? Not yet. Uh, we're certainly watching this across the world. Uh, NIH has a vigorous effort, actually in partnership with industry called TRACE, where every new variant gets quickly looked at to see what its effect would be on vaccines and on monoclonal antibodies. So far, we're looking okay, but I worry about the uh, omega strain, as you're calling it also, especially with so many people being infected right now. That's where those mutations arise. So we have enlightened self-interest in seeing the whole world get past Delta and past COVID and not just the United States. We're doing a lot there, you know, 110 million doses already sent out by the U.S., 500 million promised. We are going to have to do our part uh, to deal with the rest of the world's needs. And I don't think we should try to make this, as maybe WHO did, as a choice between whether or not we're going to protect our own people and the rest of the world. we got to do both. And we have to incredible capability through our science and our industry manufacturing capacity to do both. But let's just get on with it. A dear friend who was sick, did not get vaccinated, ended up in the hospital for six or seven days. And it was a very rough situation. Had a candid conversation with me that he believes he is now safer than me, who got the two Pfizer vaccinations as soon as I could. Is he right? It's a little hard to say for sure, but I think he's not right. Uh, when you look at people who've gotten reinfected a second time, there's a higher risk of reinfection, especially with Delta, from people who got natural infection than people who got vaccinated. So oh. he should still go ahead and get vaccinated, even though he had the infection. The evidence for that in a Kentucky study from a couple of weeks ago is pretty compelling. You boost your protection significantly if you had COVID, and then you get vaccinated on top of that. Just like okay, the doctor, did, by the way. I want to give you the, the floor for the last moment. What is the media doing wrong? Take your best shot. What are we getting wrong? I wish that somehow we could focus uh, less uh, on trying to um, uh, view things through a political lens and more from a public health lens. Look at the mask discussion. There's so much of that that seems to be focused on politics. It's crazy if you imagine an alien arriving from another planet looking at us and wondering, why are we having this massive division of opinion about masks and vaccines, depending on your political party? So if the media could kind of point to that and step away from that and, and try not to endorse some of those misinformation-driven perspectives, that would be great. This conversation, Hugh, has been great. You and I, we're talking about the facts. We're both decrying the situation where we don't have enough data and saying data ought to eat conspiracies for lunch. So let's get the data and make it uh, out there publicly in an accessible way. You and I are in the right place. But I must say the media is not always carrying the water quite like that. 
I gave you the last word, doctor. Please keep coming back. I appreciate your candor. And I do appreciate the 24-7 pace that the NIH, the CDC, the FDA is putting in. But ask a few of us to join the meetings, doctor. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Hugh. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by andrewandtodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try andrewandtodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.